Hello! Welcome to today's episode. I don't know why I'm introducing it like that. <laughs> um, today we're talking about gun dog training, which is going to be fun because I know a lot of you are interested in gun dog training. And other than the episode I did with Jane Arden, which wasn't even really about gun dog training, but we covered it a little bit because Jane is obviously a gun dog trainer. We haven't done a gun dog training episode, which is pretty crazy because we're 60 episodes in and we haven't done an episode actually dedicated to gun dog until this point. But I got a real gun dog training badass in to uh, talk about gun dog. And that is Joe Lawrence. Joe is an accredited assessor for the Gun Dog Club. She has successfully competed at events with her own dogs. She's the author of Force Free Gun Dog Training, The Basics, which is going to come out in autumn of this year. And she's a host of the Hold the Line podcast, which I was on as a guest recently. So after you've listened to this, make sure you hop over to her podcast and check that one out. But... Now, let's get into it, and, uh, yeah, let's get into this episode. Hello, and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. All right, Joe, welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to be here. <laughs> I'm, how are you? I'm very good. Very hot, but very good, yeah. You know, I was listening to one of your podcasts today about um, the harness situation, and it gave me a bit of a laugh because uh, I know that the whole harness thing is really controversial generally, but specifically with the gun dog world, it seems even more so. Have you found that? Yeah, I mean, harnesses and gun dog work are not really synonymous, really, at all. Um, so yeah, for sure. You, it would be very weird to turn up to a traditional gundor class with a dog in a harness. I think you'd probably be told to take the harness off quite quickly. Yeah. Wow. It's kind of weird really, isn't it? That people want you to do what they do kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like we're, if it's not, I guess if they think that it is causing harm though, right? Like there's all of these, these beliefs about harness cause dogs to pull, all this kind of stuff. And there's lots of negatives attached to it. Um, I, well, the big one I always hear from gun dog people is you couldn't use the, you couldn't hunt a dog in a harness because they would just be getting caught up on everything and all of that kind of stuff. Is that true or is that just an excuse? Well, pet dog owners have dogs that wear harnesses a lot of the time and they don't seem to get caught up on things. So I think that's probably not true um, as far as that goes. But I think the deeper thing behind what you're saying is something about um, how to work with people. Everyone's got their own different ideas and everyone's got their own different opinions about how things should be done. And everyone's coming from a slightly different place and everybody thinks they're right. And so how do we negotiate that? And how do we deal with that when these different worlds collide and I mean, think that that happens in all kinds of uh, different ways throughout life and not just in, in terms of dog training or gun dog training. So I think that's like a, the, the bigger subject behind all of this. And then, of course, we've got the sort of um, the ethics and the um, um, you know, use of aversives and whether that's acceptable or not acceptable and all that to consider as well. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the bigger picture behind it. So how does someone, does someone have the right to tell someone else to take off a piece of equipment? And does someone else, are they going to have to then feel they have to leave that class if they don't want to take that piece of equipment off? Um, and, you know, you're back in that kind of 
oh, that horrible situation. And how, is it, how do you get someone to come around to your own way of thinking about something? And how do you put across your own point of view so that they start to um, agree with you or think along the same lines as you? I mean, it's just reminding me at the moment, um, um, one of my dogs is hopefully pregnant. So we're going to have some puppies in a few weeks. Um, and I'm going through the whole process of vetting new owners and of looking through the uh, questionnaires, which I've had them fill in. Um, and here and there, there's occasional things that come out where you might really like someone on a whole or like their questionnaire as a whole. But there are different sort of things that come out like they, they may not feed raw food. And you may really think it's important to feed raw food um, or they may want to vaccinate their dog every single year. And you may think that, you know, that's over vaccination. It's not a good idea to vaccinate for it everything every year and so you know how do you negotiate these different things how do you have these conversations with these people and put across your own perspective and without alienating them completely and driving them away so I think that's the same bigger issue really and I'm not very good at that I have to say I'm not very good at that I tend to be either someone who'll be very quiet or say anything at all and just try and comply and fade into the background or I will you know really argue and really fight and really you know be about, you know, I want you to really believe what I have to say here. Da, da, da. So I'm not very good at that. Whereas I think I get a sense that you're much better at this than I am, Nick, and you're much better at negotiating things and placating people and working with people who may not necessarily agree completely with what your perspective is on things. So, Well, that's very kind yeah. of you. I think it just comes from experience because obviously I have to do that pretty much every day, working with people that, uh, you know, often people disagree with what you're telling them or, you know, they want to use something specifically or, or whatever. And it's trying to kind of shape them around, isn't it? But I think that a big part that a lot of people miss is that re relationship building stage. You know, when you go and see, I know it's a little bit of a different context here, but when you go and see someone for a training session, the first thing you do when you walk in the house shouldn't be tell them everything they're doing wrong, right? Like it should be about trying to form a bit of a relationship first, you know, just have a bit of a general chat. How are you doing? Um, oh, you know, like I had this chat with Chris, but like, I think it's really cool to try to get them talking about something other than their dog to begin with. So for example, like a real classic one would be if I see like they're wearing a Marvel t-shirt or something and I love watching all the Avengers films and that kind of thing. So I would go into that I'd start talking to them about Marvel the Avengers all that kind of stuff so you're building like a relationship and then as you kind of build that rapport it's easier to tell people stuff without them feeling threatened or feeling like uh feeling like they have to defend themselves but you're that's an interesting dynamic and I think that's the hard thing when you're breeding animals to try to find responsible owners but then there's also a level of accepting that people aren't going to do things exactly the same way that you do them mm. it's about to prioritize what your what your priorities are yeah yeah it's interesting because i remember when i spoke to people about getting dogs as well it's a question of would you get a dog from a breeder that uses aversive methods it's like i'm not sure <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. I mean, you'd have to talk to some of your some of the other people you've, you've interviewed in terms of epigenetics. And I mean, it'd be interesting to think about what is the impact of training dogs using aversives in terms of their genetics, what's passed on from one generation to another. I'm sure there's some impact from that. So, yeah, that would be interesting. It is interesting because they should study that. <laughs> it is interesting because I'm sure Kathy Murphy would have loads of ideas on that. But it is interesting because... Uh, if you're ever looking for a dog, sometimes you do come across breeders that 
you know, like you look at all the pictures and all the health tests, you're like, oh my God, these are like so perfect. But then you see pictures where they're in choke chains, electric collars, whatever. And you're like, oh, this has added a weird dynamic. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we got off on this though. <laughs> no. <laughs> to just to bring it back to harnesses quickly, okay. because I think that we agree on harnesses. My opinion on harnesses are they seem to be the piece of equipment that is most comfortable for the dog and least likely to cause issues in terms of their health, their physiology. And in terms of, well, you know, that big question that people say all the time, well, they make the dog pull. It's like, well, we're going to train the dog anyway. So I really couldn't give a shit. (laughs) Right? Right. Can we train dogs not to pull on harnesses? Yes. Okay. Then it's completely irrelevant because we're going to do the training anyway. So we might as well choose a piece of equipment that is, best for the dog Mm. yeah i think the harness thing is a huge it's actually really quite complicated subject because there has been more recently some more well some research that's come out which suggested that harnesses can restrict the movement of the dog's front limbs not just the ones that barricade the chest but also the kind of wide front ones that we're told are the ones that we should all get if we don't want to impede the movement of the dogs um and i'm not sure i sit on that really at the moment i just try to get the harness that to my eyes, appears to restrict the dog in the least way possible. Um, and that, you know, is comprom- uh, you have to weigh up the, the benefit of using that from, if you're going to use a collar, then the dog's going to have lots of pressure put on their throats. And so you know, basically there is no perfect piece of equipment and you've just got to kind of figure out what, you know, so again, it's one of those things you have to prioritize. You have to make your choices. You have to weigh up the pros and cons and then you have to make your own decision with all the information. So Yeah, it kind of seems uh, so- like having a dog on the lead a well-fitting harness is the best. Having the dog off the lead, you would just want them on a collar, right? Because they would have no mm. infringement on them. But I think we might have seen the same study. And the one that I saw was quite criticized because when you saw the photos of the dogs, all the harnesses were really poorly fitted. So it was like, is this a fair <laughs> test, right? Yes. Because yeah. so much of harnesses are... Like, you can have any brand of harness, really. And if you fit it poorly, it's going to affect movement. Right. Mm, yeah. So, but I, I see your question. Like the jury is kind of out on if we have a perfectly fitting harness, does that still restrict movement? Right. I mm. don't, I don't think that, I mean, there's a lot of anecdote on that, but I'm not sure that there's actually a lot of science on it yet. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I think for the Gundam world in particular, it's a, it's a bit of a uniform issue as well. You know, it's not just about choosing what is, you know, thinking about how the dog moves and choosing something for the dog on that basis. It's also about, turning up to a shoot or turning up to a training class and not looking very unlike everybody else there. And, you know, how do you feel about that? Um, Will you be accepted by whoever's running the class if you do that? And so, yeah, there was a kind of a uniform thing as well. I mean, my take on that is, is that we have to accept that a slip lead is the uniform of a gun dog and when we're kind of working the dog or in a situation where we're around mainstream or traditional people or we're competing or something, you know, that we should be using the, the uniform of the gun dog world, which is a slip lead. But we can use a limited slip, which basically turns the slip lead into just a, a flat collar and a lead. So it won't continue to tighten around the dog's throat like a noose or just go up to a certain point and then stop. Um, and so I think that's a, that's the best solution. And you can't tell you can't tell that it's a limited slip rather than a slip unless you look at it really closely. So I think that's. That's the solution for that situation. But then, I mean, that decision comes down to, 
you know, cultural stuff and the idea of not wanting to um, stand out too much, wanting to be accepted by um, the mainstream. It's a bit like, because turning up with a harness on would be a bit like turning up with a massive badge on saying, I train or t-shirt saying I train using force free and you know it would just be it'd be a big statement basically yeah. and not everyone wants to make that statement uh-huh. so so is it I built think, is it built into the rules or are we just well actually the rules say that you can't the dog shouldn't run with anything on so not even a collar on they should be run completely without anything okay. on at all if you're competing so um the slip is just used when the dog's not actually working just to you know quickly put a lead on the dog um so yeah yeah. So I guess it doesn't have to be. You could stand there and put your dog back in a harness, but it just takes longer. Yeah. 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 No, um I guess like, yeah, that was a really interesting take on it, uh, the whole uniform thing because it was an angle that I hadn't really thought about. And I you know, we had a conversation on your podcast about balance trainers and like the best way to go about trying to kind of form relationships, build bridges, all that kind of stuff is to come at it from a non-threatening angle, right? From the kind of just like an equal footing. And I guess that this is kind of the same thing, right? Like if you go in with a harness and like you said, you're wearing that big badge, right? Maybe you're alienating people right off the go. And actually, if you go in with the limited slip, then you have more, It's you're kind of showing a respect, right? For the sport, I guess. And maybe you're less likely to put people off and more likely to kind of you know if if your goal is changing minds and i'm not really sure that that should even be your goal then that might be the way to go yes i mean it just doesn't do you any favors to alienate people before you even really have met them or know who they are uh, particularly when they may be judging you (laughs) at some point so i think it's probably yeah that that's probably it um yeah. I mean, walking in with a big with a harness on would be like walking with a T-shirt on, like I said. And then that would be a bit like saying, hey, everyone, look at me, you know, and you don't want to like walk into a new training class saying, hey, look at me oh. in any way. I mean, you just want to like you want to be <laughs> I mean, you want to be there to train your dog and to gain yeah. from the experience of working with these people. Not like that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah, that's yeah. the last thing you want to do when you're when you're in a new group is. I guess it's like a instinctual thing, isn't it? You just want to kind of, I don't know, when I go into a new group, I just want to take it easy, right? Most of the time, just kind of like yeah. see what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> like trying to fit, just acclimatize to the situation a bit. Um, yeah. In terms of gun dogs, though, obviously there are lots of different gun dogs, right? Like there are Spaniels, there are Labradors, there are the Pointers. How does it differ between those breeds? Are they asked, are they expected to do very different things or is it all relatively similar? No, it's very different. Um, I mean, I think it's different to the point that, that that different subgroups may not even have an awareness of what the other subgroups are doing and the the form of assessments that they, they go through or they have. Um, So I mean, a Spaniel would conventionally be hunting quite close to the gun because they have to be hunting within gunshot range. If they put up a bird or something and it's further away than, um, than that, then the bird will be lost. So they have to hunt quite close. And it's all about, it's a bit like a storm in a teacup. It's like lots of activity, but in quite a small area and the dog being very fast, but, but very close to you. Um, and then it, your HPRs um, will be hunting wider area. So um, they do that because when they find the game, they point and that gives you an opportunity to approach with the gun. So that's hunt, then, point, retrieve, right? 
Yeah, so they're hunting, and then when they find it, they'll point, yeah. and then that gives you a chance to get into place um, with the guns, and then you can ask the dog to flush, um, and the dog will be steady to flush, and then you'll shoot the game, hopefully, or you could miss it, um, but hopefully you shoot it, and then, and then the dog will retrieve it. Um, so that's a help with retrieve, and then retrievers will spend a lot of time walking at heel um, and when they're not retrieving, and then they're just sent to retrieve. So... They're like the retreating specialists, as it were. So, so yeah, that's um. So they're quite different. So what way. what dogs fall into the hunt point retrieve category? Most of the continental breeds. So you know you've got your Weimaraner, um, yeah, Slovakian for pointer. Just name those two to start because they're the two that I have. Um, Vizslers, German wirehead pointers, um, wirehead Vizslers, um, Sesky Fusex. Okay. Um, as it is, lots from the continent. Okay. okay. Um, and the Spaniels, they re- they retrieve as well, right? So they hunt and retrieve. Yes, sorry, I missed that point. bit out. Yes, they, they will hunt, but they don't point. So okay. they'll hunt, they'll bustle in and put the game up, and then that shot, and then they'll retrieve it. Okay. When Disclaimer, I love Labradors, but why would you get just a retriever if you can choose a different breed that does more? Well... I think there's probably a lot of people who say the same thing. Is what you say. <laughs> um, um, I think it really depends on the type of hunting that you want to do or the type of shooting that you want to do. So like if you're, if it's just you and you know, you and your gun and you've got to go out and get some food to put on the table and it's a very small scale thing, then I think HPR would be the ideal dog because they, they kind of, they do it all. You just need one dog they can do it all. Um, so yeah, but if if you want to have if you want to participate in a shoot, if you you know where there's a lot more stuff going on, and if you want a retrieving specialist that um, is very very biddable and can be handled very precisely, um, then that's where the retrievers come in. So you know they can be stopped and cast left and right and back. And although HBRs and spaniels in the UK are kind of expected to do that. For HBRs, at least, they're not expected to do that on the, in the continent where they come from. So they're not kind of bred to handle in that way. If you look at like the forms of assessment that are available in the countries that they come from on the continent, they, they're not assessed to, you know, be cast left and right and back to, they, they just hunt up the game that's been shot until they find it and bring it back to you. So although in the UK we expect them to be able to do that, they're not actually bred to do that. And retrievers are your kind of specialist handling dogs. So if you're a control freak, which I'm a self-confessed control freak, then having a dog that you can train to handle really well and precisely is just a slightly satisfying thing. Um, and if you know where there's some game, but the dog doesn't know where it is and it's a blind retrieve, that's a blind retrieve, then you can have a much greater chance of getting the dog to where the game is because you can handle them um, in that way and work them over quite big distances. And they're also really good with water as well. So if you've got game um, that's come down in water, you can, you can do that there too. So, yeah. In terms of those categories as well, is the avenue into gun dog work the same for all three, or do you have to go different routes depending on what you've got? Well, there's not any one route into gun dog work. I mean, there's lots of different places that people can start. Um, did you mean like a recommended route, or did you mean like a. Well, um, say that someone's listening to this and they're like desperate, they want to get into the gun dog stuff, but they're a little bit lost as to what they should do. H- how would they go about it? Well, I think the Gundog Club is a really good thing to look into because this is quite, it's a relatively new thing um, in terms of um, the the way that the Gundog world works. Um, so basically it's, um, it's we're set up by Pippa Mattinson and it's all force free. So it, there's no aversives used. 
in by the instructors or assessors and they have assessors and instructors around the country and the assessors and instructors run classes and training and they also do assessments you can just do the assessments if you want to um, but that would be the best place to start I think they have a website thegundogclub.co.uk or something mm-hmm. so that's a really good place to start just because it gives you like the first few rungs on the gundog ladder in a force-free way because before the gundog club there used to be like this very distinct split between like pet dog training and then gundog training and it was it was hard to make that transition i think what the gundog club has done really successfully is is bridge that so that people can you know do the pet dog training but also then get the first few rungs on the gundog training ladder and so there's not that big split anymore. And it's really ha- it's going to help, hopefully, people get into gundog training in- from a force-free way as well. So, yeah, that's really cool because I know that that was something you were really passionate about, like trying to popularize this. Mm. And it does seem like I can see that why the- where that divide might have existed before. So is the Gundog Club, is that kind of like, do you meet up and do workshops? Is it from home? You know, what exactly are you doing? The Gundog Club is... It was an organization that has set up these tests. So it's sort of grade one, grade two, grade three, up to grade five. And you have to complete certain tasks for the grades and you get assessed by the assessor. and We'll have a past merit or distinction at each level. And it's different depending on the subgroup. So there's grade one Spaniel, well, it's called HR, hunting retriever. Uh, there's grade one HPR and there's grade one retriever. And they're all different tests depending on what type of gun dog you have. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically what it is. Is it open to any breed or do you have to have like, okay. So does it matter if they're crossed or anything like that? No, any breed of dog can do it. So there have been like Labradoodles doing it. And I think someone did it with a terrier and I did, there's been different, you know, breeds of dog doing it. Um, I'm glad to hear that because one thing that always drives me insane is when you get these organizations and they're really strict on has to be pedigree has to be. You know, whatever yeah, no. makes you want to tear your hair out. Yeah, it does not have to be a pedigree <laughs> and does not even have to be a gun dog. It's about gun dog skills. Because you know what? I think gun dog skills are really, really about having excellent control over a dog in a rural environment. And that's what everyone wants. Everyone wants to have excellent control of their dogs when they're away from the house with them. I mean, that's what 99% of people want. You know, whether it's a recall, whether it's stop their dog chasing something, whether it's stop their dog eating poo or I don't know, whatever it is the dog's doing, people want control of their dogs away from the house. And that's what gun dog training is all about. So, you know, I think it's actually basic gun dog training is useful for all dogs. Um, not even just gun dogs, but all dogs. Yeah, I certainly know a lot of dog owners that have gone to gun dog, gun dog training because they did they, they, exactly that's what they wanted. You know, they just wanted a little bit more control and they thought it would just be a bit of fun to, to do that. Right. So mm. I, there definitely seems to be a market for that kind of thing. Yes. Um, but what we kind of need is we need to encourage more people to get a bit more hardcore because we've got lots of people who, um, lots of sort of people doing pet gun dog training. And I don't mean that in a sort of um, derisory way. That's great that they're doing that. But we also need to get more people who've come from a force free perspective actually going through into competing and being successful. And that's what's going to really change hearts and minds is when we get loads of people. And when that becomes much more common to have people who are very successful but have come from a force feed perspective as well, that's that's going to be the big change. Whereas there's a tendency at the moment for people to get stuck in the pet gun dog world and mm-hmm. not to move across into working tests, field trials, you know, shoots and well, doing why do you think that is? 
I'm not sure exactly. I don't know if they're a bit intimidated by it can be a bit intimidating. Do you have to world. when you move into the field trial stuff, do you have to like do proper shoots and all that kind of stuff? Well, before you would go to a field trial, you probably want your dog to we definitely want your dog to have experience doing the thing they're going to be doing because it would not be very well received for you to take a place on a field trial because there's only a certain number of places. Um, and then to have a dog which hadn't actually, you know, performed that task before. So you want to make sure your dog can do it and that shoots are a great place for dogs well, to gain experience. It's just that I know that a lot of people that do pet gun dog stuff, like they're content to work on dummies and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And maybe they feel a little bit weird about going out and actually hunting. Yeah, there's lots of stuff they can do with dummies, though, which is also beginning to, you know, move across. So apart from the Gundog Club grades, there's also the Kennel Club Working Gundog Certificate, which is can be done totally on dummies. It can also be done on game, but you can just do it totally on dummies as well. Um, so there are ways you can move across working tests all on dummies, apart from sometimes in the open test, sometimes has some cold game. But most of the um, you wouldn't be going into open class anyway, you'd be starting, you know probably a novice dog, novice handler, maybe puppy. So all those classes will use dummies. So there's lots of ways that you can begin to move across into the mainstream gun dog world and still use dummies and not actually be involved in shooting. So, Right, cool. Well, let's let's talk about the clicker retrieve stuff as well because uh, I think that is really cool because I know that a way, the way that a lot of retrieve was taught early on when you were teaching these like formal retrieves was a lot of you know, like pinch and release, right? Like I remember that I remember seeing a horrible exercise and you're probably familiar with it where they pinch the dog's ear when they don't have the toy in their mouth. And basically you teach the dog to keep the toy in their mouth, not the toy, sorry, the dummy like that, uh, which always seemed incredibly unnecessary to me. <laughs> so I know that the click clicker retrieve is a massive thing for you, but maybe if you could kind of give us like a, a small summary or introduction to what that actually is. Yeah. I mean, the clicker retrieve is, it's not really a massive thing in that. I think it's, it's a sort of a foundation skill, which is something you would do with, I would do anyway, with every dog that I had and I put them through this process. Um, so once it's done, it's done. And you know, you're then moving on and working on loads of other things. So it's not like this massive thing in that respect, but it is an important thing to do, I think. So basically the clicker retrieve. So what you described there, the process of pinching the dog's ear, it is called force fetch. So um, that's very common and popular in North America, particularly for training gun dogs. So yeah, they would either sort of, what you do is get your thumbnail and you would um, bend back the dog's ear against the, the their collar their um, normal flat collar and you dig your thumbnail into the, the cartilage of their ear so that that would hurt because it's quite sensitive inside the dog's ear then the dog would yelp and when the dog yelps and opens their mouth to yelp you'd stick your bumper or your dummy in their mouth and then you would release the pressure they call it pressure because i don't they don't like to call it pain um so <laughs> let's say <laughs> pressure so they would release that, yeah. Um, so then they would release, they would take that off the dog's ear. Um, and then the dog learns the quicker they get this thing in their mouth, the quicker the pain stops. And then there are other versions of this. So there are like toe hitches where they'll get, they'll get something between the, the webbing of the dog's toes and they'll like hurt the webbing between the dog's toes with a piece of string or something. Um, and so when the dog opens their mouth, then it's just exactly the same thing, but using a different okay. part of the body. And then they can also transition that across to the e-collar. So the e-collar causes pain. 
and it's the exactly the same way. And that way it works in a remote way away from the dog. Okay, let's say um, that we, we have someone that has, has done one of those methods. Why is hmm. the clicker retrieve preferable? Well, the clicker retrieve is preferable because it's it's clearly preferable because it doesn't cause any pain. Um, it doesn't cause any conflict in the dog. So if you watch um, um, videos from well, North American videos showing dogs that have been force fetched, retrieving, you can see all kinds of behaviors that they have, which are a result of this process they've been through. You can see them sort of chomping the dummy and they're mouthing it and they're kind of rotating it around in their mouth as they come in to the, to the deliver it to the, to the handler. Um, and sometimes the, the solution to this, for some bizarre reasons, to cause the dog even more pain. So like to hit the dog under the chin, like as if that's going to stop the dog from mouthing the dummy to cause them even more pain um, or discomfort or fear. Um, so, yeah, so all of that is created. That mouthing is created by the conflict. The dog doesn't want to come up to the person. They're a bit, they're scared, they're anxious. They don't like this whole process. Um, but they also have no choice. They have to bring it back because they've been force-fetched and they know that if they don't bring it back, then what's going to happen? So um, that conflict results in this chomping of the of the dummy. Joe, I, th- um, I think that this is why so many people are a bit scared of gun dog, right? Like, mm. I think that the gun dog world, more than most, still has that reputation of being a little bit brutal yeah but this is i mean i should say this is not commonly done in the uk um in britain so this is something that's done in north america it's i wouldn't say it's never done in the uk there probably are some people who probably do it but but you know it's not the common way that you would teach a dog to retrieve if you went to the classes here you would be taught to do things like you know make squeaky noises throw the dummy away run away so the dog wants to chase after you with the dummy and then pat the dog very very calmly while they're holding the dummy and praise the dog and not be in a rush to take the item off the dog and so it would kind of be molded in that sort of way so there wouldn't be probably any of us as involved in doing it in in the uk way but the downside would be that it wouldn't be the retrieve wouldn't be broken apart and put together in a way that the dog understands all the component parts and so frequently it will fall apart and you get people with different problems like the dog wants to drop the dog goes out and picks the dummy up but they drop it and get distracted on the way back or the dog comes back and then they they drop the dummy at your feet and then you know all that kind of thing or they want to play keep away they've got it in their mouth and they dance around at a distance from you but they don't want to deliver it um or they're just not interested in sometimes they'll do it and sometimes they won't do it and they'll run out and they'll just won't bring it back and so there's not a consistency to it so yeah um basically all different ways that a retrieve can go wrong and what the clicker retrieve does is it breaks down the retrieve process into ways that dog understands these different parts and then it puts it back together again so it's a bit like a, a chain as it were um and i should say there are actually many different clicker retrieves so it's almost like a plural rather than when we say the clicker retrieve, I think everyone's, everyone's got in their mind or many people have in their mind an idea of what that means. And there are actually many different clicker retrieves devised by different people. Um, but what I would say they all have in common is that they are all inv- kind of breaking down the retrieve process. So they're not just clicking when the dog puts something in your hand, because that was my version. So when I started out trying to do gun dog work with my Vimarana slate, um, you know, I don't know, 13 years ago, whatever it was, um, she, I, I used the clicker. I knew how to use a clicker for things like sit and down and heel work and stays and everything else that I was teaching. And so I was just trying to use the clicker for, for the retrieve. And so I came up with by myself, um, the idea of let's just click her if she puts it in my hand and I'll give her a treat. And if she does anything else wrong, then I just won't click and give her a treat. So that's what it will do. Um, and it just wasn't working and it wasn't consistent and I didn't know how to fix it. 
And I started to think about the fact that we have these other dog sports which involve retrieves, like obedience and working trials and um, tracking does sometimes. Um, so basically, there's lots of other service dog work. So, there's, you know, there's retrieves in lots of kind of different um, dog sports. And they're not all gun dogs doing that, those retrieves. Um, some of them don't have a natural quote unquote retrieve at all, some of those breeds of dogs. So how were they doing it? And that's, I started to look a bit further afield. That's when I came across Anne Bussey and her brilliant method of the clicker retrieve, which I highly recommend. Um, and she's a working trials competitor and judge. Um, and so I went along to a seminar of hers. I think it was an all day seminar on the clicker retrieve. And they kind of brought in a dog at a time and workshopped the process with, with the dog at a time. And that was where I first learned about how to do it and did that with my Viron slate and it fixed our retrieving problems we're having. Um, and since then I've just done it with every dog that I've had and I've taught it to my students as well. And it's just like, I see it now as an essential process really. So yeah. And you end up with a reliable retrieve, which is reliable in any object. So it doesn't matter what the object is. You can <laughs> you know, point at it and the dog will pick it up and give it to you. So yeah, your DIY clicker, you know, click when the dog puts it in your hand thing just reminds yeah. me so much of so many of the stories I hear. Like I went to do a one-to-one session with someone the other day and they said that uh, the puppy party they went to told them to train the recall when the dog's running back to you, continually click. Just click, 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 click. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> this is the, there's, this is, and, and so often I go to sessions where people have been put off the clicker right because yeah. they've had a bad experience and i think that clicker training has really become very misunderstood you know and and actually a lot of the time when i'm training people um i use verbal markers instead so we use yes or whatever just because it's convenient for dog owners and they never even realize they're doing clicker training right I just hmm. explain to them you know if you say yes then that means that what you've what the dog has just done has won the reward, blah, blah, blah. But I never explain it as clicker training. Um, but it's funny that people have got, have got a bad impression of clicker training sometimes. But actually, when you go to the, when you want like precise behaviors and you're breaking it up like that, that's a really good way of doing it, isn't it? And, and you kind of, cause you're building it up, you almost don't give it as much opportunity to go wrong. Uh, whereas you might, if you were doing that, just kind of running around and, and playing with the dog and encouraging them to bring it back, which is great if you just like, you've just got like a pet dog and you just want to mess around and play retrieve. But if you want to like a gun dog where the precise, like it has to be retrieved in a very specific way, then building it up like that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the thing is a lot of dogs will come with, problems as it were i don't i think there must be some genetic tendency towards them something so things like keep away um i think that's also made a bit worse by new owners for example repeatedly taking stuff off the dog so the dog picks up their underwear and they chase them around the house and take stuff off them or so you know little puppies will pick up anything they can get in their mouths and the more that someone's constantly approaching the puppy and taking it off them the more the puppy's learning that this person is you know a threat to their possession of the whatever it is so it's kind of related to resource guiding in a way, keep away that they're kind of, you know, very close together. And I love the clicker retrieve for dealing with resource guiding as well for that same reason. Like it, it, in the same way that it gets rid of keep away, it gets rid of resource guiding too. So. Yeah. You also yeah. see a lot of like panic swallowing, right? Where, you know, mm. if, if the dog has something, then they learn to swallow it, to be able to keep it. And yeah. uh, the way that we deal with that with, with that with pet dogs, where I know we're not as concerned with precision 
is um, teaching the dog to bring things to us, right? Like every time the puppy gets something, we don't chase them for it. We either encourage them in or we run away from them or whatever. And mm. I, I think that was what you were explaining about how a lot of people do it and then they're uh, not in a rush to take that thing from them. And we do what we call swapping, right? Like, mm. um, you know, if we want to take something from the dog, then we're going to swap that for something the dog prefers, right? It's usually food or whatever. Mm. And one issue, actually, Joe, that I wanted to bring up, because I know it's a really common one, especially for people that have crossed over. Like, for example, I struggled with this for a long time where because I was using aversives when I when I first got my Labrador. And we told him off for chewing things, for, you know, having things in his mouth and doing all that kind of stuff because we didn't want him to be doing that. And then. Uh, when I crossed over and I wanted to mess around and do retrieves and all that kind of stuff, he had this real aversion to, I don't want to pick anything up with my mouth because of the history of being told off for doing that. Mm. How can you take a dog that really doesn't want to interact with anything with their mouth and start to get that retrieve going? Yeah, well, that's what shaping is about. So you would start with, you would put your object on the floor and you would start with just clicking the dog for looking at that object. So if their eyes kind of wander towards it, you'll click um, and make sure you've got that consistency. You've got that fluent and the dog constantly looking at it you know, for a click and a treat and they look back, click, treat, look back, click, treat. And each time we're throwing the treat away from the object on the floor, so the dog's running after the treat to get it and then they're re-approaching you and the object happens to be on the floor at your feet. So you often get at least a glance at that point that you can click. Um, once you've got the glance, you can then, usually it's quite easy to get a sort of an approach. So if you delay the click and don't click as soon as they look at it, they'll often walk up to it a bit closer and you can click that approach and that sniff maybe of the object. Um, and then there comes a little hurdle where they have to actually get their mouth around it. And that's often a little hurdle which people find difficult and you have to kind of break it down a bit. Some dogs will just go straight to that and there's no problem at all. Other dogs will do things like you'll have to break it down to pushing the object a bit harder on the floor. So you might click only the times when it wobbles on the floor and not click if it's static on the floor. Um, you might click if the dog's mouth is open as they approach the object and not click if the dog's mouth is closed when they approach or, or sniff the object. So you're basically shaping this you're breaking down the behavior that you want which is the pickup into smaller steps um and then eventually you get your pickup you get the dog's mouth going around the dummy and you'll be clicking as the dog picks the dummy up from the floor the dog will then drop which i think people find this bit difficult this idea that because it's a bit you know tiny to sort of suggest that the dog should drop the dummy on the floor in gun dog work you'll be like no the dummy must always end up in your hand you must never have the dummy on the floor but but it's part of the click of retrieve that when the dog picks it up you click and then the dog will drop the item on the floor and then you throw the treat away from the dropped item and the reason that's really important is because that's where keep away comes from it comes from this conflict between the dog wanting to have possession of the item and and the dog seeing you wanting to have possession when you when they deliver it to you and so you could get rid of this conflict by not attempting to take possession of the item for quite a long time until you've shaped the rest of the process. Um, so, yeah. And then you, you get a hand target. So this is, a, by the way, a hugely simplified overview of the <laughs> process. So you would, you would teach a hand target without the dummy, and then you would put the hand target in whilst the dog's got the dummy in their mouth. So you get the dog coming back and touching your hand whilst they're holding the dummy. You would then still let it fall to the floor because you don't want to be taking it off the dog yet. Um, and... Yeah, that, that's basically, after you've got that really consistent, then you might one time out of five take the dummy off the dog and then slowly increase that if you see there's no problems happening. 
So yeah, that's yeah. more or less what I did with my Labrador. And I got to the point where previously he didn't want to have anything in his mouth. And then whenever we would start a shaping session, he would want to be grabbing things and picking them up, mm. right? Because yeah. that had become the response. So we had gone completely 180 Yes, uh, with that. Yeah, so you can have lots of fun. Like I've done things like put tissues on the floor and the dog picks up a tissue and, and delivers it to you or, um, I don't know, some ridiculously huge thing which they can't even quite get their mouth around <laughs> on the floor. So, yeah, it can be quite fun. Obviously, it's really good for trick training as well because there's lots of tricks that involve picking stuff up and doing things with objects. So it's useful for that too. Am I right in thinking you do a course on this? Yes, I have an online clicker retrieve course. It's a five-week course, so it's... There's videos and there's handout sheets and there's an email that goes out every week for five weeks. Where can people find that? At the moment, they need to email me about it because I need to update the website and get some of these courses on, on the website. But yeah, they can email me at joe at dogworks.org.uk. I, I really wanted to talk about um, the whole book fiasco as well. Mm. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you could explain to people what happened because... Obviously, you had this drama where you had this book deal and everything was exciting. It looked like a real move in the right direction and then it fell through. So could you kind mm. of ex maybe explain that a little bit better than me? Well, yeah, I had a, I had a book deal for a book which I wrote on force-free gun dog training. Um, it was kind of an introductory book. I, I just felt there was something missing in terms of force-free gun dog training in terms of a structured approach to training a dog. Um, at the moment, people ha still have to piece together lots of things from different places in order to be able to arrive at a fully trained dog. And I just felt there needed to be something more structured for people to follow and they need to be understandable. And there were certain key things like the clicker retrieve, which I, I don't think really exist in a comprehensible way with illustrations. Um, and so I decided to write this book. It took a long time to write. It took about four years to write very slowly. And and then I just decided I'd had enough of it hanging over me and I wrote the end of it very quickly. Um, so, yeah, there's, there was a publisher. The publisher was going to publish it and I'd signed a contract with them. I should say they're a mainstream country sports publisher. Um, and so I was surprised that they wanted to publish the book, but they did. And um, we got quite, you know, signed a contract. We designed the jacket. We would had the book edited. Um we had, you know, it was, it was supposed to come out in a couple of months' time, I think. Um, and so it was fully finished. And then I just got this email, which basically said that they'd shown the book to the editor of the UK's leading shooting magazine, which that's what they said. They didn't tell me which magazine that was. Um, and to sum it up, that, that editor had poo-pooed the book and had said that, you know, that's not how you train a gun dog. And... Um, if you publish this book, I'm going to give it a bad review and tell people not to buy it. And the publisher pulled out. So that's basically what happened. Um, and that was the first publisher that I'd sent it to, at which point I felt a bit burned. And I was a bit like, oh, I don't know if I trust anyone else with this book again. I don't want to go sending it out. And because you kind of give up a lot of control when you, when you do this. So, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the story basically of, of what happened. So, Picking, picking things apart a bit, that obviously the editor of the UK's leading shooting magazine is a very mainstream gun dog person. And this book on using the clicker and using food and training in a force-free way was what they'd objected to. And I think felt threatened by, frankly, felt threatened by 
this approach towards training gun dogs, which isn't their approach. And I mean, I think we've we've done a full circle. We've come back to where we started our our conversation today, Nick, because we're back at this idea of these two conflicting worlds. And what do you do when you have different ideologies and different people's points of view collide? So, yeah, that's, how, how that's did this? Happened. How did it make you feel when you you know got that email and everything kind of fell through? I was so angry. I was so angry. At the same time, I kind of felt like, well, I really, if, I, if it's going to be published by someone, I really want them to be completely behind it and supportive of it. I don't want someone to publish it if their heart's not in it or if they are a bit worried or scared. or you know, I really want them to be fully behind it, and that's important to me as well. So if they do feel this way about it, maybe it's good that they're not going to publish it. So, yeah, so it's now going to be, it's now going to be self-published. We're going to publish it. Um, my husband has – he's very talented at learning um, anything, anything visual whatsoever. So he's kind of – learn how to use the InDesign software and he's it's looking really good he's showing me like we have pdfs of it now it's nearly finished we've got i think um the cover to do and a few bits and pieces um so yeah so i had all the illustrations done as well that 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 was good as, as well but that was before they told me they weren't going to publish it i was like what i just like spent all this money on these illustrations and now i'm just left with this so yeah it was awful it was terrible i think what um, you said is right though you know to have that strong of a response against a book is it does give you the feeling that you know this person felt threatened by you know what you had put in there and maybe maybe you should see that as a positive right like actually you know yeah. this book is going to shake things up right in a good way because it, it does feel like this is a niche that needs to be shaken up people do need to you know be able to, as you said, you know, find this structured approach, puts everything in one place, gives them a, a way of um, doing stuff which is more efficient and kinder, right, to, to the dogs. Um, yeah. I mean, it will shake things up, but the problem is like, we're back at this whole original subject again because it will not be, it will not threaten them so much if it's published by by me or if it's published by a publisher who publishes other force-free training books, because they'll just be able to say um, or reason in their mind somehow that, you know, it's just a pet gun dog training book. It's not a threat to, to our way of doing things, you know, whereas if it had been published, I think by a more mainstream country sports publisher, then it, it would have blurred these two worlds in that way. And so it, it would have been more of a threat to them. Um, and that we're back at that kind of idea of there being these two separate worlds in the gun dog community of this sort of pet dog training um, versus you know this is how we do things properly people in the mainstream um and trying to kind of blur those two and get more pet dog trainers to be very successful in the mainstreams and infiltrate that is 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 important i think well surely the, the the way that you can go about this now i guess this gives you motivation to really make sure this succeeds right because mm. I mean, not only because it's really going to change the way people think about gun dog training, but also to kind of show these people, like, come on, guys, <laughs> you missed a, you missed an important point. Hopefully, in this transition to a more modern way of training gun dogs, and actually, like, we had this conversation again. You know, we've had it before, but like, if we can show people that this is. Not only are we like, uh, this isn't just like moral grandstanding, right? Like this is actually a better way of training dogs, right? Yeah, I know. I've been thinking about this because you said that to me 
when we had the conversation on my podcast. But my thought about that was, yes, I believe that, but I don't think that these people in the mainstream communities who use aversives believe that. Um, they really believe that to train a dog effectively, you have to use punishment. And it's not effective if you don't. And, you know, you can't just say yes, you have to say no as well. And, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, that's... Oh, that's I do agree. Doing. I do think that they see it as being the more efficient, effective way of doing it. Mm. And this is where I think, this is where I get frustrated with the conversation because I feel like the best way for us to advocate for our way of training is to show them in results. No, this is, look, look, look at the stuff that we're achieving here. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that goes back to the whole idea of wanting people to go and compete and be successful, having trained the dogs in a force free way. That would be seen as proof that, you know, this works with more and more people. But, you know, it's, it doesn't really work like that because what happens, and this is the problem, is that people, it, we're back to the idea of someone turning up in a harness to a mainstream gun dog training class because people don't want to turn up and go, hi, I train force free and look at me. Look at how successful I am. We're going to win this working test. Uh, you know, people will show up and they'll fit in and they might even hide the fact that how they've trained. You know, they won't go promoting the fact. That, you know, if someone comes up and says directly to them, how did you train this? That they might explain it. But, you know, People don't usually do that. Yeah, but that's um, and to be honest, you know, I've been. That, that's part I, of the route I, to mastery, right? Like, if you're a newbie hmm. to a sport, you don't go in like thinking you're the shit, right? You go in, yeah. you put your time in, and then in five, six years, when you have the results to back up what you're saying, then you can strut around saying, "Hey, look, like this is how I've been training dogs. It's working." Yeah, it's a bit harder than that because I think there's also the whole sort of. Um, that's a really good dog side of things as well. So, you know, that would happen a lot in, in when I would do the working tests with, with my Vimer on a slate. And if we were successful and we got placed, there would be a lot of, you know, oh, that's a good dog or that's, you know, she retrieves really well, or, and it would be seen to be, oh, it's, it's that dog's innate natural ability or something like that, rather than it's the training or, yeah. you know, it's. Yeah. That's because you need more, you need more than one dog, right? Like you need to show that mm. this is, replicable we need an army <laughs> well i think that this is <laughs> why free army <laughs> this is part of the reason change is slow right and yeah. and i guess like part of keeping your sanity is starting to come to peace with that that not everything is going to change overnight yes i mean i so much don't like being the flag waver that i because i live in jersey now um, which has zero going on for it in terms of gun dog training whatsoever. Um, it's it's illegal actually to shoot partridge or pheasant here unless oh, wow. you have a special permit, um, <laughs> and we have no shooting season. So so basically, I've really kind of moved to the you know arse end of nowhere in terms of gun dog stuff. Um, but what I've done with that is I've channeled it into writing the book and into my podcast and into, um, you know, trying to make these online courses that I'm running. So trying to like spread the word a bit and be a bit more proactive. And I feel free. I feel more able to do that because I'm a bit more of an outsider than I was before. I don't know if I was still rocking up to, you know, training events and tests and things. Um, and if I was still doing that, if I would feel as free to be making this podcast and, you know, advocating for all of this in such a public way so i feel i feel like moving away to the periphery of things has enabled me to to feel that i can speak out a bit more 
because I haven't got much to lose, frankly, um, from this position. So that's a real shame, though, yeah. isn't it? Because that indicates that there are maybe people inside of the gun dog world um, that would love to be doing what you're doing, right? Would like to be putting out podcasts and all that kind of stuff and are feeling mm. restricted. And actually, I think that content creation has a massive part to play in this, right? Like yeah, putting out this yeah. this information, right? You know, like we spoke about showing the results in the dogs, right? Showing that the dogs are actually uh, better trained. And then, but the content creation is a huge part of that as well, I think. Hmm. Yes, I think that's true. I think there are people out there who are not, you know, who are playing down their achievements and who are not um, really highlighting how they've trained what they've trained and achieved what they've achieved and don't want to fly the flag for force free trading, although they are using it. Um, uh, yeah. So and that just it makes it, the whole situation really difficult because it's it's like. I don't know, it's like the Empress New Clothes or something, or it's like there's, there's something going on that everyone can't see. Um, and so, yeah, the people who believe that you have to use aversives can happily go on believing that you have to use aversives. Because- yeah, and, and, and I'm not sure. Sh- I think that we do just have to continue to get results. We do have to continue to put out content on what we believe to be the best way of training. And that will shift people. I'm not sure that obsessing at this point over the people that, aren't the believers. Hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure that's a good way of, of doing it because there's at this point, there's so many people that want to learn, right? Yeah. I think that actually it vastly outweighs the people that don't. And the people that don't hmm. will become convinced as content comes out, as the results are seen in the dogs. Because at the end of the day, they're human as well. You know, I've spoke to so many people that are competing and they say to me, look, if I thought that was a more effective way of doing it, I would do it that way. Right, which is where I think that look, we just have to show that it's more effective. And if there's one criticism of the positive training community, is that we obsess over like how many memes do you see on Facebook? Like, don't use prongs, don't use electric, pain, no pain, or you know, like all of this kind of stuff. You're just obsessed with this ethical angle. And there's so few people that are just posting their videos of dogs that are just trained like badasses with positive training right like how many videos Hmm. do you see as well of like dogs that are trained with aversives that are really well trained as far as the um as far as like uh someone that doesn't look deeply into dog body language can see right dogs doing crazy heel work and like uh doing instant downs and all this shit and you don't really see that from the positive training community and it's like, I would love to see more of that content. I'm desperate. I think the world is desperate for it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think that's really why, why that might be. I think because it can be quite a slow, gradual process to, to record how things have been achieved, impressive things have been achieved using positive training methods. And the process itself may not look that impressive, whereas the end result might do but oh i just mean the result though do you just mean the result yeah Yeah, i don't know then in that case i don't really see a lot in terms of the result other than in worlds like trick dog stuff like you see a lot of like trick dog uh tricks and all that kind of stuff and but i think that a lot of trainers that train with aversive have kind of they can have that right like oh you know that yeah if you want to train your dog do tricks yeah do all the clicker training stuff but they don't they don't believe that when it comes to actual working stuff that this is the best way to go 
And I think part of that is the content isn't really out there showing really or all the comp- competition results or whatever hmm. showing it done. And I, I would love to see more of that kind of stuff. You know, one thing that, um, <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about this recently because some of my clients achieve things that aversive trainers claim are impossible all of the time. Right. Like, uh, I've wrote, I've wrote a few emails about this recently. Um, I had a training client that recalled her dog off sheep, right? Dogs never been trained with aversives, right? There are people that write online, you can't do that without an electric collar, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, this person has done it. She's not even a professional. I've just coached her through the process. Or, um, uh, I, all the time I'm working with dogs that are reactive. They're aggressive. No, you can't do, you can't rehabilitate them by pushing cookies into their mouth. It's like, well, I'm doing it. Right? Like we're doing that all the time. And the thing is, I, us as reward based dog trainers, we are doing this kind of stuff frequently. I think we need to be a little bit better about documenting it instead well, of. I just... think it might also be that these people are saying that because they can't. So it's a limitate, it's a reflective limitation of their training ability. So they don't know how to do whatever those things are that you've just listed. They don't know how to break down the behaviors into small enough you know, component parts that they can be successfully trained, Uh whatever it is. So yeah, because they can't, they believe therefore it is not possible. And that's the thing that they have to acknowledge and accept their own limitations, first of all, before they're going to be able to look further for answers elsewhere. Well, I think that if, if I was a crossover trainer, well, I am a crossover trainer, but if I was like deeply into the balance stuff, I would want to see, firstly, I want to see the results, right? I want to see, dogs that are capable of of working to the level that the aversive dogs are right so i can see hey look no they're capable of doing it as well and then i would be interested in things or even really to be honest i think just human nature you want to see better right like i want to see that they're Mm. able to do better things then i'll be interested in hey joe sign me up for the clicker retrieve because i saw what you did right yeah <laughs> or, or whatever it is I whatever mean, program the whole subject does get a bit complicated because i'm just now thinking about i mean in north america for example you've got the situation where the retrieves for retrievers are really really far they're like i don't know 400 meters or something they're really they can be really great distance away and the argument is that because of the way that these um um competitions are assessed that the precision is so important that you've got to put the dog right on the retrieve. You can't, you know, in the UK, for example, you would, it would be acceptable to put the dog into the general area of the retrieve and then to tell the dog to hunt up that area. And the dog would hunt in that general area where you've put them to find it. Whereas in, in North America, you would want to nail the retrieve. You want to have the blind, the dog runs right onto it. Um, and they're, they're able to be handled with that level of precision. And so their argument is that when you're working at that kind of distance, that you know, if the dog blows you off, if the dog takes a cast wrong, that you need to have an e-collar on the dog in order to be able to have that level of precision or handle the dog to that degree of yeah, precision. So I think we eventually get to a point whereby you have to actually question the assessments themselves and think that if this is an assessment, which if it's true that in order to be successful at this type of assessment competition whatever that the dog has to be trained aversively then maybe the assessment itself is is not a fair or valid or acceptable or mm-hmm. form of assessment yeah um, i think that's but an... I think they can have it both ways 
Yeah. I think that's an interesting hypothetical, right? But it's I it's another road I don't think we have to go down because I don't I do think that raw based training is more effective overall. And if there are certain situations like that, I think we just have to find the solution. Right? Like I I don't believe that we can't do things we can't do X, right? When Bob Bailey is training freaking pigeons to shoot things with bombs <laughs> or spy on people with cats or getting dolphins to work for hours and hours and hours to find bombs. It's like, yeah. do I think we can achieve X, right? Do I think we can train a dog to let go of a bite? Uh, Yeah, because uh, Bob yeah, Bailey, Cam Ramirez are training <laughs> fucking crazy shit. This seems simple as hell, right? Maybe we yeah. haven't figured it out because whatever we need to figure it out and that that's on us right i get i get it i'm not involved in the sport so i'm not i i don't know what the thing is there but is it possible yeah i think so right and, and if the, we- hard, the hardest thing is the distance i think that because with an equal you have a way of administering uh-huh. punishment immediately or an aversive immediately at a distance if there were a way of administering a reinforcer immediately at a distance to the dog uh-huh. That I think we could definitely be as successful. So until someone comes up with a collar, which you go beep, and it sort of, I don't know, has a little tube which delivers a treat directly to the dog's mouth or something. Um, so you're saying you don't think this is possible? I'm not saying I don't think it's possible. I'm just saying I can see their argument that that it's difficult or that they don't see a way to make it achievable. But my response to that isn't. My response to that is: Is it? Do we want to have a, a, an assessment system where dogs are like robots and where we, you know, do you know, do you ever see that news article where they put something in a cockroach's brain and they could control where the yes, cockroach yeah, yeah, sure. it becomes a little bit like that? Do we, or do we want to have like a dog, which is like a remote control car, which we just like drive forwards and, yeah, so, you yeah. know, is that what we want? Or do we want something like the British yeah. system where you put the dog in the area and then you pass the uh-huh. initiative over to the dog to uh-huh. hunt up the area? Is that more you know, have things gone too far in in a particular unrealistic and unachievable direction in North America? Anyway, that was, that's one way I think about things. No, I think that that is actually happening across a lot of sports where they, it seems easier to achieve something with aversives, especially with the electric collar, because you have that feedback system at a distance. It's very convenient. You press the button. And then because they've developed that, they create challenges accordingly, which fit when you train that method, it fits it very nicely. Hmm. And I think that as positive trainers, uh, you have two routes. You either adjust the rules to a point where it's easier to achieve. And I think that, the aversive trainers lose ahead of that or yeah but it's not necessarily to, it. to be there because it's not necessarily easier to achieve it's more that the dog has is allowed to have more initiative for whatever it is do you know what i mean so there's a partnership so yeah. that, that you've trained the dog to think for themselves and to find game for themselves and you've trained the dog that at this point in the proceedings you pass that control to the dog to mm-hmm. to do whatever it is yeah, that's and that that's point. acceptable yeah so, that's a great yeah, point anyway, i interrupted you no i think you made a great point yeah, or I was just going to say, or we figure out how to do it. Because there's, mm. sh- there's loads of shit that we figured out how to do, right? Like, mm. um, just to give a comparison, um, I'm very involved in reptiles as well. Like, I love re- keeping reptiles. Right? There was a time where people didn't know, how to f- didn't know how to breed things like bearded dragons, right? 
now any idiot can breed a bearded dragon <laughs> right but there was a time where people had to figure that out they're like how the hell do we do this right and it mm. took time for people to figure it out and then they figured it out and now anyone can do it because you just go online you search in how to breed a bearded dragon or whatever and they tell you how to do it um and and i think that a lot of this is a case of we just need to figure it out um mm. or as you said change the rules and i think that both are acceptable ways of doing it because you see the impact is also on the dogs as well and the breeding of the dogs and the genetics too because if you breed dogs which you you kind of have to train using an e-collar because they're very sort of in for example with hprs they're very into hunting they're very driven they're very you know um they're not biddable and they're not being bred to have a natural biddability but they've been bred to kind of need to have the e-collar as a form of control and that's just how that's just what's happened for generation after generation after generation um then you end up with this dog which you may well actually have to use the e-collar on or keep on a lead you know if if you want to have control over it whereas in the uk i think part of what's valuable what's valued in dogs generally is biddability which means the dog wanting to work with the handler wanting to cooperate valuing the reinforcers that the handler has and the sort of social interaction between dog and handler becomes a part of the reinforcer too which um and so i think that we end up with we breed that sort of dog instead. You know that's what I mean? Really so I think interesting, that... That's a really interesting point because I see that in some breeds, in the protection st- stuff, especially where they are highly resilient to stress. And mm. I I think I spoke about it on the episode with Patricia McConnell where I was like, I think that a lot of the reason they're so resilient to stress is because that's what's needed in order to succeed with the training methods uh, being used. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. And that's why we get some some dogs which are in are quite sensitive, um, which have been bred maybe in the UK. So you, you get dogs which you just go, um, I don't know, if someone were to go no to that dog, it would like me- immediately stop what it was doing. Like it would experience that as quite a strong aversive, just that no. And I think that may be because in mainstream traditional gun dog training in the UK at least, that would be what would be often used would be someone going no, don't move, don't chase it, or you know that tone of voice and that kind of mm-hmm. that that's a way of having control over the dog at a distance, aversive control over the dog at a distance. And so dogs have been bred in a way that's kind of been bred in as well. But the dog is responsive to minor aversives and sensitive to, to a minor aversive, minor verbal aversive like that. Um, yeah. 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 Well, this is fascinating. I feel like we could go on forever, but I've got to run. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where can people find out more about you, Joe? Uh, and maybe I know that you've already mentioned it once, but where they can email you for the uh, online course. Yeah, so I've got two websites. I've got um, dogworks.org.uk, which is kind of my general dog trading website. And I've got galladygundogs.co.uk, which is sort of what I do with my own dogs. Um, and sort of the gundog stuff, I have been keeping on the Gallady Gundog side of things because not all my pet owners like to know about all the gundog stuff and the hunting stuff. So I kind of separate these two things out. Um, and yeah, you can email me at joe at dogworks.org.uk. All right. Fantastic. And of yeah. course, you have your own podcast, Hold podcast the Line. It's called Hold the Line. Yes, you can just find that on most podcast platforms apps yeah yeah i'd certainly recommend that for anyone that is wanting to delve into the gun dog side of things more i think that yeah. that is a really fantastic resource cool yeah and you came on it as well so they can catch up with they can see yeah. you from a different angle <laughs> as the interviewee <laughs> yeah as the guest yeah yeah all right fantastic well thanks joe cool it's good to talk to you
Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Joe is a really cool uh, dog trainer, but she's also a, a great gun dog trainer, and her podcast is well worth checking out. Certainly one of my favorites in this niche. And of course, don't forget you can join us over on the Facebook discussion group to talk about the podcast. Share your thoughts. Let us know what you thought about it. Any questions you have, we'll run it over. Um, and just search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group to find that. And I won't even say leave a review, but do that if you have the time. But what I will say is share this podcast with someone. Tell your friends about it. Because I think podcast is one of those mediums where you listen to them in the car and you never tell anyone about what you're listening to or what you're doing and it really helps me grow this podcast if you can tell your friends that really love dog training or invite them to the facebook group or get them involved in some way so we can continue to grow this and spread our little message here and if you want to grow the show notes if you want to grow if you want to grab the show notes for this episode which is where i'll put the links for joe's podcast and her websites and all that kind of stuff then you can do that by heading over to nickbenger.com slash joe hyphen Lawrence. All right, see you guys.